Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory, founder of TeamsRock.com. Join us as Greg interviews thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from professional sports to manufacturing to business and industry. Now, let's join Greg for another powerful episode of the Teamwork Advantage. Welcome back to the Teamwork Advantage. It's a podcast that we're dedicated to the growth, development, and advancement in three key areas, teamwork, leadership, and culture. My name is Greg Gregory, founder and host of the Teamwork Advantage, and we're excited to have a guest with us this week and someone that I've admired for the last few years. And it's interesting because he's one of the closest guests I've had to my location here in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, I just gave you a little background on uh, our guest today. Again, we're focusing on three key areas, and our guest today brings us all three of those in one setting. So strap on, let's buckle in, and let's have some fun. Vice Admiral Sean Buck is the 63rd Superintendent at the United States Naval Academy. He's also a graduate of the Academy and received his commission in 1983, and he was a designated flight officer in the Maritime Patrol community, where he flew on board PC-3 Orion and P-8A Poseidon aircraft conducting a wide variety of missions alongside allies, partners across Europe, Asia, the Middle East, as well as Latin America. Prior to reporting to the Naval Academy, he held a command five times in his career, most recently as commander of the U.S. Fourth Fleet. In this role, he commanded the U.S. Naval Forces deployed to South and Central Americas, engaged with allies and partners in a region to promote mutual security and interests for our nations. Building teamwork across nations is challenging. We're only working at it from teams that we work with on a regular basis. Vice Admiral Bucks holds a master's degree in international security policy from George Washington. He also has completed studies at the, Naval Co- at the College of Naval Command Staff, U.S. Naval War College, Armed Forces Staff College. He has a fellowship with the Massachusetts Institutes of Technology Seminar 21 in foreign politics, international relations, and national interests. So he also holds executive certificate programs the Harvard Kennedy School, the Harvard Graduate School. I take it you uh, enjoy education, Admiral Buck. Yes, sir. I I love to learn. Uh, I'm always very hungry to learn. It makes you a better person. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I've always said I, I never really enjoyed school, but I love to learn. So that was uh, my philosophy throughout life. When did you decide and have an idea that you wanted to attend the Naval Academy as a uh, midshipman? I think I'm one of the unusual ones. Uh, it was at a very early age. It was about eight years old. Um, I come from a Navy family. My grandfather served for 37 years in the U.S. Navy, both as a, an enlisted man and then earned his commission and ultimately retired after 37 years. My dad is a Naval Academy graduate and a Naval aviator from the class of 48A. I had two of my uncles who I was close to attend the Naval Academy and serve Naval careers and a couple of cousins. So, Greg, I think I think it was in my DNA and <laughs> and some of the early experiences with my dad enjoying Army Navy football games somewhat cemented my interest. And my dad fostered and nurtured that all the way to the application years. And and then I got in. That is that is absolutely awesome. Um, I'm not unlike you in that aspect. Um, I took a field trip and my father was the school bus driver, he had a little part-time job, drove the school bus. And we parked there on King George Street outside gate one. 
And uh, I had a tour of the Naval Academy, and I was in the fourth grade and fell in love with it. Unfortunately, my nomination came going to West Point, and my heart was not in West Point. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, I never did attend the Academy. I've had a great respect for those who do. Over the last years, the military has changed greatly. Teams have changed. Leadership has changed. And a group that draws from a diverse, and the Naval Academy does draw diverse people towards being midshipmen. What, what strategies have you come to expect from these individuals to building a cohesive team? How do you take young people to build such a strong, cohesive team today? Well, I think as your, as your listening and viewing audience appreciates, uh, our student body of about 4,400 young men and women by law come from every congressional district in our country and from all of our U.S. territories. And we're also complemented usually by about 59 or 60 international students from around the world from our partner or ally nations. So you can, as just as you've said, that's quite a diverse group of young men and women. They come from rural areas. They come from middle America. They come from very populated, high dense uh, urban areas. And what we do, they come from all walks of life. There's kids that come from uh, wealthy families, uh, underprivileged families. They come from different educational school system backgrounds. And how we bring them together as a cohesive team is they, they get put in a very stressful environment when they first arrive. We call it plebe summer. That's about the first six to eight weeks before their freshman academic year starts. And they quickly realize, very, very quickly realize how important teamwork is, that they will not be able to successfully navigate the Naval Academy rigors and, and uh, obligations and demands unless they work together. They don't navigate it as individuals. So it's kind of a, a sink or swim, maybe a forced team building up front. And then once they realize the importance of that man or that woman standing by either one of their sides or in front or behind them, and they either see that those folks help them get through a tough spot, or they feel the elation and the pride of helping another one of their classmates get through a tough spot, that naturally builds an unbelievable cohesion of teamwork. And then they carry that on for the next four years through their journey at the academy, which does not get any easier. The demand signals get even stronger over the four years. And it's fun to watch that evolve, Greg. It's fun to watch a young man or woman who may have been very successful in high school, either academically or, or in their respective sport, or they may be a, a very accomplished musician and they come together and they realize they're in a highly competitive environment, but they're not the best. Uh, and they need to work together to, to succeed as a team. That is so powerful because what you teach in those six to eight weeks just is the foundation. And then of course it continues over the four years that they're uh, a midshipman. You don't, you don't choose your roommates here at the Naval Academy, at least initially you don't. So most of your choices, we like to kind of joke, most of your democratic rights are, uh, are taken away. And then we give them back to you one at a time during your plebe year. And we want you to learn how to be a good teammate. The other purpose of plebe year 
that builds that cohesion and that unity is plebe year is meant to teach you how to be a follower because you can't be an, uh, ultimately you can't be a good leader if you don't know how to follow so all of them are thrown into that same environment of learning to be followers when they're all usually a type personalities and they all want to lead absolutely there are so many courses out today on leadership and there's very few out on followership and um, i find that fascinating when you start to look at that when a midshipman graduates, um, they're either going to go into the U.S. Navy or the Marine Corps. Um, they're graduating as a commissioned officer, which means they have some leadership abilities at that point. What, what is one of the most important things I've always talked about is listening. How important is listening to being a very strong and uh, developmental leader? Greg, the best leaders in the world are the best listeners. And then those that practice active listening are truly the best listeners. And there's a big difference between hearing someone speak to you, speak at you, speak with you, or speak amongst your team. And there's another thing to actually listen and absorb and comprehend what they're saying. Mm -hmm. uh, so we try to teach uh, active listening here and the importance of listening. Um, I would suggest that probably 80 or 90% of the solution of any, any problem set given to a leader can be resolved or solved by listening to those teammates around him or her. So real important to, to be a good listener. I remember my mother saying, you hear me, but are you listening to me? <laughs> That's exactly right. And, yeah. and as you've just alluded to, I think we all, if we're fortunate enough to be raised, uh, you know, with a mother and a father that are in our, in our world, we learn a ton of life lessons from our moms. Yes. Oh, ab absolutely. There's no doubt about that. This is a tough question because I, I, we, we talk on here about teamwork and leadership. So as an ensign begins to move forward um, in the Navy and begin to lead, they've got to listen, they start to build up and they start to move through the ranks and there's certain things they need to do to advance. What are things that leaders should be focusing in on today to really advance his or her career in the Navy or even beyond the Navy? Well, at lunchtime today, as a matter of fact, I'm being given the opportunity through invitation to go speak uh, to one particular company's graduating seniors um, about entering the fleet here in just a few short months. And what I'm going to share with them over the lunch hour is what does a commanding officer in the Marine Corps or the Navy initially expect of them as they enter the fleet? They're a newly commissioned officer. They were in this leadership laboratory at the Naval Academy for, for four years. They are perceived to be confident, competent leaders, but we still need to tell them what is most expected of them as, as they enter as young ensigns and second lieutenants. I'm gonna tell them today that the number one thing that we need them to do is to work very, very hard to become the fiercest and most competent warfighter that they can be in their respective units. 
if they go to an aviation squadron or a submarine or, or a ship or a, or a Marine Corps platoon, their senior leadership is looking at them and depending on them to become super competent at their war fighting skill set first. And they'll be given time to do that. The second thing that they need to do, and it's a close second, is they'll immediately be given the responsibility of leading a small group of sailors or Marines. It won't be a large group, it'll be a small group. And they need to immediately commit themselves, their time, their energy, their thought, their love, their passion to taking care of those men and women that are put in their charge. And that usually to combine those two tasks that usually gets uh, requires that that young ensign or second lieutenant commit a lot of their free time. Uh, it's a 24 hour a day job to serve as a, a competent commissioned officer in our military. So if they take those two things seriously and they commit themselves to that, I've seen it day in and day out amongst the, the officers in my many wardrooms that I've had a chance to command those officers will succeed because one, they'll be trusted by their commanding officer to be put into the fight and know that they're gonna fight and win. And they're also gonna be trusted by their young sailors and Marines who see a new leader in their particular uh, squad or division or platoon. And those men and women will trust them and give them the shirt off their back and fight and win alongside them. Let's look beyond the Navy and the Marine Corps for a moment. Let's look to private sector, because we have a lot of folks listening from around the world. We've been downloaded in over 70 countries at this point. Talking about becoming a warfighter, how can, how can you translate that to a private sector's type of position? What would you recommend for somebody in that scenario? I believe it translates very well, Greg. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm about to do this myself. Um, I transitioned this coming summer after 44 years of naval service. And what I'm finding out very quickly is the leadership skills that I have learned and practiced in the military are exactly the same leadership skills needed in the private sector. It's all about taking care of people. It's all about a keen focus on the mission of your organization and working hard to try to have that organization succeed and prosper. It's all about listening. And it's all about the care and feeding of the men and women that you're responsible for or that you serve and get to work alongside. It, is, it translates very, very well I just realized that in the private sector, I will wear a different uniform to work, but I can be the same person that I've been for 44 years. And I'm hopeful that I will be invited in and respected by and enjoyed by the men and women that I'll work with in my next career path. And that applies not only to me, but that applies to every single one of us who will transition out of wearing our uniform into the private sector throughout our lives. Absolutely. Um, I understand that the military in general has actually worked with the National Football League in the past about helping former players make that same transition from their short career professional athlete to private sector. 
because there are quite a few similarities there. They're so focused in one area of work. So making that transition is important. And I agree, I think there's a lot of similarities that can be drawn between the military and the football transition, but also between military leaders and civilian leaders. Yes, sir. I think, uh, I think one thing that, that, that may be advantaged by a military service member transitioning also is by, by job description, many, many people, we, we practice our leadership skills 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're, we're on the entire time. And we have many, many opportunities to succeed with our leadership skills. And unfortunately, but it's reality, we have many opportunities to fail. And when we fail, we have that opportunity to, to analyze that and learn why we failed and how we could do better the next time. And what that allows us to bring to another team in the private sector is, is confidence, not arrogance, but confidence yep. in our leadership skills that we won't shy away from tough issues or tough problems. Um, and that we're very, very willing to join with everyone else and lead through and talk through and plan through and then execute a, a plan to make our team successful. I'm, I'm proud to be one of those people and, and I'm hoping that I'll be able to contribute very well with, with the skills that I'm bringing out of the Navy. And I think that, that goes a lot to understanding that and recognizing um, the transition. So over your 44 years in the Navy as a commissioned officer, things have changed significantly. What traits are you or what traits should we as a nation today be looking for in our young people looking to enter the Naval Academy and become midshipmen? Loyalty, commitment, courage, a, a deep-rooted sense of patriotism, and a, and a desire to be part of a team that's much bigger than themselves. And then if I could take us back just briefly into that discussion about listening, mm -hmm. one of the biggest thing that's missing in society today is civility. We're not taking the time to be civil to one another and respect each other's opinions. And you can do that much better by listening to one another, actually slowing down and taking the time to listen and appreciate what all of your teammates bring to the fight or bring to the organization. And to be more inclusive, you can be so much more inclusive on your team if you take the time to listen and get to know your people and realize what each and every one of you contributes to the team effort, because not one single person on that team has all the skills needed to have the team succeed. It's that leader who can aggregate all of the individual skills from their folks. And you figure that out by listening and learning about your people. You, you've echoed so much of what a lot of my friends have said over the last months and years civility, listening, conversing, not talking uh, at everything. The generation coming out today, as with every generation that comes out, there's always something about, well, this generation, something of that nature. 
What are you noticing in this generation coming out today? The, say the midshipmen that have graduated the last three to five years and the ones that are graduating now. What are you noticing? Well, let me first tell your audience that they should have no fear that this current generation of young men and women who are voluntarily joining our military services, they're awesome. They're really, really good people. They're patriotic, they're committed, they're courageous. Nothing has changed in those core characteristics of who we're getting in the military. Now, what has changed, Greg, and, and, and I've learned this from being a dad. I'm, I'm the proud father of a 37-year-old son and a 34-year-old daughter. Uh, they were born in the 80s. I don't know what generation that makes them, maybe millennials, uh, maybe. But one thing that all the leaders need to know these days is this current generation of young folks want to know why. They ask the question why a lot. And you and I, I would suggest you and I are about the same age, same demographic. We didn't necessarily find encouragement from our environments and our parents to, to ask why. We were just told to do and to shut up and put up and do. But this, this, young, this young generation, they want to know why. And what I have found out to be very, very effective and to succeed with all these, these teammates is I slow down and I take the time, if I can, to tell them why. And then they love it and they understand it better. They have clear direction on what their role is and what I'm asking them to do. And we always move forward and, and crush it and kick ass. Yeah. So everyone needs to, to understand, take a little bit of time to tell your folks why. My father used to say, it's not yours to ask who or why, just shut up or die. Exactly. And that's not the way it is today. Um, that's right. You know, there's a, the Simon Sinek TED Talk, it starts with why. Um, and I believe that when somebody knows why, they will figure out how. If you only tell them how without the why, they may struggle. They may get there, but they will struggle. Here, here. So that's what that ties into. So let's go back. You graduated from the Naval Academy in 1983. That was the third year that women graduated from the, mid, uh, from the Naval Academy, from any of the service academies. And I believe in 1980, there were 55 women uh, in that graduating class. That's correct. What, first off, what was that like for you being in the first, because if you were graduating in 83, they would have been your senior officers at that point, am I right? That's right. So I arrived in Annapolis in the summer of 1979. And the senior, so I was a freshman in, in the summer of 79 to start. And the senior class that were entering, about to enter and embark on their fourth and final year at the academy were the, the ones that would graduate the next year in the spring of 1980. The very first uh, graduating class of women in the service academies. And they served the senior class at a service academy, serve as the leadership of the entire student body. In our case, that's called the Brigade of Midshipmen. And uh, there weren't very many uh, women here, uh, but they were in leadership positions because this is a leadership laboratory and each and every midshipman is given the opportunity to, to learn how to lead and, and build your leadership skill set. And I found myself coming to the academy with a female squad leader, one of those women 
was my immediate superior in command. Uh, at the time, her name was Barbette Henry. Her name, her married name now is Barbette Henry Lowndes. And she was my squad leader and she had contact with me probably 16 or 17 hours a day. And it was her direct influence on me and, and the members of my squad as my initial impression of the United States Naval Academy, of the United States Navy, squaring us all away and teaching us how, how to be better midshipmen, better sailors, and to understand the value system and the expectations of, of the new command that I had joined, the, the United States Naval Academy. Those ladies had a, had a tough journey. They did a real nice job, but they had a tough journey because they were not yet truly uh, welcomed and, and partnered with all of the men that were serving. It had been a, a completely male-dominated organization up until that point. So they had a lot of things to prove, probably more than a, a young male uh, had to prove. And, and I feel as though all those ladies were heroes. They were trailblazers. They did a great job. They persevered. Barbette Henry went on to serve 30 years in the United States Navy and retired as a Navy captain, a very senior rank in our Navy. Yes. as a supply officer. She did very, very well. That's incredible to recognize that because I know at the time there were so many people, and even to this day, there are some people who say women don't belong in the military. And um, you just said that that's absolutely untrue at that point. It's somewhat of an ignorant statement because the people are not realizing what the world population demographics gonna be in mid-century. If you read demographic studies around uh, 2050, 2052, 51 or 52% of our country's population is going to be female. And whatever your organization you're in, whether you're in the private sector or whether you're in the military, wh whatever it may be, you want leaders, you want good leaders. And those leaders come from that population of people in your country that can join and volunteer and serve. And if half that population's female, then you better get on board. There's going to be female leadership in every single organization that we have in our respective environments, in our communities, in our military, in our private sector. So they need to kind of get on board and figure it out. They're, they're a day late and a dollar short when they still come up with those very strong, uninformed opinions. Yeah. How have women made the Navy better? The, Navy's the women have made the Navy better because they have brought a diverse perspective to, to military teams and to our Navy team. We clamor to have people from every walk of life. I believe diversity is a very powerful tool and it's probably best displayed in the US military and, and all aspects of diversity, gender diversity, racial diversity, religious diversity, um, socioeconomic diversity, educational diversity. We find out that midshipmen that have had a lot of international experience by living abroad and living in other cultures, that is a perspective that they bring to the rest of their classmates here that's fascinating. They, they, they're, they speak multiple languages, they've learned different cultural norms, and it makes them better war fighters once they commission because we're never going to fight it alone as, as, as a nation with our military. We're always going to fight with our partners and our allies as a, as a more powerful team. 
And if you've grown up in more of a diverse environment where you are used to being around people that don't look like you or talk like you, and you respect them for who they are and where they came from, that's very powerful. And, and you and I well know that a woman's perspective on things can be very different than a man's perspective. And it's good to have both of those as we tackle problems. And I, you're, you're spot on, and I agree with 100% of what you're saying, because we need different perspectives, and that's, that's just one that's coming to the table. What advice would you, speaking to women today, what advice would you give females looking to get into and expand on their leadership and their responsibility? To not be afraid to pitch into the fight. We have a pretty, uh, a pretty impressive statistic here right now. So as I shared with your audience at the beginning, our, the, the brigade of midshipmen, our student body is 4,400 young men and women, about 1,100 per class across the four years mm -hmm. uh, of undergraduate students. Women currently make up about 30% of the brigade of midshipmen, but they are currently holding or serving in 44% of the leadership positions in the brigade of midshipmen. Wow. And they're doing very well, Greg. They're That's doing impressive. very, very well. So and they don't message, get handed that role. They have to earn that role. Yes, they have to be, they have to earn it. They have to want to do it. They have to train toward it. And it comes with a lot of pressure to step up and be a leader because it's above and beyond all the other obligations that you have as a midshipman, your academic obligations, your physical mission obligations. To, to take on a leadership role at the academy is above and beyond. So my message to the ladies are, just come to the Naval Academy and see how many women are serving in leadership roles and step up and step up and do it. It's good. It's what we're trying to develop here are leaders of character for the United States Navy or Marine Corps. And beyond at that point, because not everyone who graduates from the academy is going to spend 30, 40 years uh, on active duty. Exactly. And, it, and when you read our mission statement, it's to develop leaders of character to serve in uniform and or in roles in our government, private sector for the rest of their, their lives. We've talked about teamwork. We've spent some time on leadership. Let's talk about culture. How would you define the culture at the United States Naval Academy? Culture currently is, is very cohesive. It's, uh, it's real strong, uh, but it could always be better. Um, each year as a commander in the military, every commanding officer is required to survey their workforce to try to get a pulse of what that culture is. I have had that obligation. I've done it each year that I've served here. And it is a report that comes directly back to me in which men and women anonymously are allowed to talk about the culture and give you a grade, give me a grade and tell me what's good and tell me what can be better. Uh, right now, we have a, a pretty good culture of those that listen to one another. They treat each other with dignity and respect. There's a great sense of teamwork, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. And when you put all of that together, that creates a culture in which I, I want this. This is, this is an ultimate consummate demand of mine for our culture here. 
I want every single soul, man or woman, that lives here, works here, comes to visit here on the grounds of the Naval Academy, I always want them to feel as though they work in a safe environment that's free from discrimination, it's free from an, an unsafe environment, they feel valued, they feel welcome, they're listened to. Those key things are critical here. And, and, and I'm proud to tell you that I believe the culture here amongst not only the Brigade of Midshipmen, but all of the men and women who work here and serve the Brigade of Midshipmen and develop these, these young folks, they feel safe. They like to come to work. They're proud to come to work. They like their teammates. And they think that they work in a, in a, in a good environment with a good culture. And that, that's powerful to know that's where we are now. I'm assuming that if, over your career that you at some point were in an environment where you did not necessarily approve or the culture was not what you expected. What was that like for you? And did you, were you able to go in and try and change that culture? Yeah, so let me continue to focus on the, the culture of the service academy and mm -hmm. the Naval Academy itself. Okay. Right now, as I said, we can always do better. We're always looking every day how we can make it better. And uh, right now, a recent report came out in the press that talked about the prevalence of sexual assault at the Naval Academy and sexual harassment. Um, I'm not very proud to tell you or your listening audience that since two, 2014, those, the prevalence of that has increased. That's bad. We need that to end because that's definitely not creating a culture of safety. And it's not a culture of treating one another with digni dignity and respect when that crime is committed. And uh, I'm hellbent and I'm committed to making that go away at the academy. That has been something that has also been uh, uh, an effort of mine in every command that I've been in to get rid of those types of horrible things that break down the culture of a command, uh, of a team, mainly sexual assault and sexual harassment and not treating each other well. And that has defined, actually defined me in one particular tour of duty as a flag officer. I was assigned to be the Navy's sexual assault prevention and response officer and suicide prevention officer. And uh, that was tough work. Uh, because none of that is good news, but I felt as though it was a labor of love and a labor of, uh, of, of commitment to try to improve those things and get it out of our workforce. What would you do? What are ways you go about changing a culture? What I found out is one, talk to small groups of your organization. You can't put a message out effectively to very, very large audiences. It, it's okay. quite often lost on the audience. So you have to take the time to break your team down into small units where you can truly have thorough, hard, small discussions where you can include more people and their opinions in the discussion. Okay. So that's, that's one strategy and that takes, takes a lot of effort. Takes effort and takes a lot of time. And takes a lot of time, which is time is a very precious resource. Also, I found out in those small groups, some of the, the most powerful ways to teach and to educate is through testimonial, storytelling, honest storytelling. 
and getting people tell your own story, my story, if, if I'm the speaker, or asking our speaker to, to give their own testimonial because your audience can then relate to you much better. Because more times than not, people sitting in that audience have had the exact experiences you have and they never perceive that you might have had that experience. And then you join yourself to that audience much better. They listen better. They learn better. And I think those are the two most effective ways to educate and try to flip something that might be bad in your culture and tell them. And then go back to, Greg, tell them why. What, so why do we need to rid the Navy and the Marine Corps and the, the military services of sexual assault? The why is because it breaks down readiness. It, it decimates the readiness of a military unit if members are suffering the aftermath of a sexual assault. And, and so we're all about war fighting readiness. You as a citizen, every all your listening audience, you expect us to be ready 24 hours a day to go fight and win and protect our country. And we can't be 100% ready if we got all sorts of internal problems in which we're attacking ourselves instead of spending time attacking the enemy. Internal fighting is, is a cancer. Absolutely. There's no doubt. If we look back on your career, what's one of the most difficult situations you were in, either as a team member or as a leader? And how did you get through that? Well, to answer that question, there are three examples I'd like to share, not in great detail, but I'd like to share that they were the most difficult, but they're also the three scenarios in which I am most proud that I led and served to try to solve. And they all have to do with humanitarian assistance or disaster relief. And, and, and these are uh, in order, this global pandemic, COVID, being at the helm of the Naval Academy and leading this organization and this school and this team through a global pandemic was very, very difficult because there was no playbook. None of us had a playbook. None of us were instructed on what to do or how to do it, but through good listening and good teamwork and learning, we figured out how to navigate that problem together. But really, really challenging, really hard, but I'm proud of the team that we, we got the Naval Academy through that safely, uh, effectively. We never shut down, we kept on going. And we've returned to a, a sense of normalcy here, and I'm very proud of that. The second one was uh, uh, in 2011, I was a flag officer. I was in command over in Japan. And I lived in Japan during the Great Northeast uh, Earthquake, 9.1 on the Richter scale, the second most powerful earthquake in recorded history of the world. And from that earthquake, then 21 minutes later, created one of the worst tsunamis to uh, ever strike uh, a population. And then about two hours after that, the Fukushima nuclear power plant that was hit by the tsunami began to melt down and create a radiological disaster in Japan. And uh, I was about 85 uh, kilometers from the epicenter of that earthquake at the time when it hit. I was in command 
and uh, spent about the next uh, six to 12 months of my service helping the Japanese and helping the country of Japan recover from that earthquake, tsunami, and, and uh, nuclear meltdown. And then the third, uh, the third one was um, I was the senior officer put in charge of, an, of a, a coalition search for a lost Argentinian submarine in the South Atlantic Ocean. 44 souls on board. One of those souls was the uh, Argentina's first female submariner in their Navy. Submarine lost at sea. I spent about 111 days looking initially search and rescue. But after about eight days, when we knew that there was no more available oxygen on that submarine, it was gonna turn into be a search and recovery from one Navy to another, from one partner nation to another partner nation, we were hell-bent to try to find that submarine and recover them and bring all those sailors home to their families. We failed. We did not find that submarine. It was ultimately found about a year later by Robert Ballard, the, uh, the famous explorer who found the Titanic. It was found in 19,000 feet of water submerged and, and, and just a, a, a pile of heat. But those three efforts, uh, Greg, uh, were the hardest things that I've done in my career, but I'm also the three things I'm most proud of, trying to help other people and help partner nations. Yeah, you said a number there that I just, I can't even begin to fathom of 19,000 feet deep. Yeah. Yeah. Moving forward. Going into leadership into the private sector, speaking to other professionals that are coming along behind you now, as you leave the United States Navy, what are three key things you want to tell the leaders of tomorrow? Continue to have faith in the men and women that, that raise their right hand and volunteer to serve in our Navy, in our Marine Corps, and in our military. Our country's still producing really good people. My hat's off to a lot of moms and dads around the country who are raising fine children and who are still encouraged and motivated to join the military. So the leaders that come behind me have faith. Their sailors and their Marines are continue to be really good people. I would suggest to them to work really hard on their, their culture their command climate and continue to devote themselves to creating an atmosphere and an environment where their sailors and their Marines can thrive. That's their responsibility as the leader to create that good culture. And if they do that, the rest is easy. Their teammates, their sailors and their Marines will enjoy doing what they do and they'll have a winning team. And then the third thing is to continue in senior leadership positions continue to be good listeners. It's well over half the problem. Uh, solving the problem is to be a good listener. Admiral Buck, it's been a privilege to have you on board here with us today. It's been my privilege. I appreciate your invitation to allow me to join you. And I wish you the best of luck moving forward in your new endeavors. The power behind what you have done with the military is it touches me being someone who appreciates the military for everything that it is. And uh, I wish you the best of luck moving forward. Thank you, Greg. Folks, United States Naval Academy, I like the term you use, sir. You use the term a leadership laboratory.
for the Naval Academy. And I think that's just a very powerful, powerful term. Lessons can be learned. I've shot pictures and videos from across Fah Creek back towards the Naval Academy talking about leadership that's conducted and learned there. So the power behind the Naval Academy and what you've listened to today is great. I encourage you to go back, listen to this again, pick up the salient points, figure out what you can do, translate that into how you can use it in your business because it is transferable skills that can be brought across. Teamwork, leadership, culture, those three things are powerful all the way through. It's a Venn diagram that sets itself up. Folks, once a week with the Teamwork Advantage, you get ideas of things that you can do, use, and work on immediately to build a better teamwork, leadership, and culture. When you listen to the Teamwork Advantage, you're not average. So as I always say, do not have a good day. Good days are for average people. When you listen to this pro podcast, you're not average. So go make today excellent and exceptional. Till next time, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit TeamsRock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on The Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.